Welcome to Voices of Esalen, I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Fred Dust, former global managing partner at the acclaimed international design forum IDEO, where he worked with leaders and change agents to unlock the creative potential of business, government, education, and philanthropic organizations. He's worked with the U.S. Agency for International Development, the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, and the U.S. Social Security Administration to create citizen-centered strategies and the structures to implement them. Fred has also collaborated closely with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Knight Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, and Bloomberg Philanthropies to improve the impact and reach of their programs. He's on the board of trustees for the Sundance Institute, on the board of directors for NPR, and chair of the board of Parsons School of Design. Fred's new book is Making Conversation. Fred Dust, welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm happy to be here. You're the author of a new book, Making Conversation, where you write, in part, everything's moving too fast. The news media promotes friction and faction. Politics and democratic dialogue seem lost to us, each day hitting a new low. College campuses have become so divided by race, class, and gender politics that institutions that were built on dialogue are now afraid to host it at all. Once we might have believed others were wrong, today we believe others are lying. That's a pretty good summation of where we are, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that was written three years ago, remember. It's a... <laughs> It's like it's a, it's it's a um, books take a long time. So it's it is it's funny. It's people keep being like, "Wow, it seems like it was like it's like predicted the future." And I was like, you "No, know, it was like that then. It was just not as bad." So. Now, Fred, you recommend in your book making conversation. Ask for the conversation you want. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to make a couple of requests. Please, I would love that. Thank you. Thank okay. you for following my guidance. I appreciate it already. So go. Definitely. <laughs> uh, number one, I'd like to take away from this conversation some actionable tips that can help me learn to treat conversations like creative acts. Number two, I'd also like to learn about you. I'd, I'd like you to be vulnerable in revealing who you are during this conversation as we kind of go through your book. And in return, I could tell you a couple of things about who I am. And my hope is to have a, a creative conversation with you about your book, Making Conversation. I'm open to both those things, and I and I and I and I, I, I value. I think both those things are highly valuable in a conversation. So so, consider me vulnerable, and uh, and yes, I will I will ask you some some things as well. The first thing I want to ask you, you you talked that you, about the fact that you have a tattoo that says brave. So, in the spirit of being vulnerable, what is the occasion for the brave tattoo, and how does it speak to who you are? Yeah, it's it's interesting, and um, and and you're you're actually one of the first people who's asked me about that, and I'm, I appreciate it. Um, you know, uh, I I've had unfortunately a lot of death. In fact, <laughs> only death. My, I've lost most of my fam- all of my family. But so about God, I don't even remember so much. About eight or nine years ago, my my brother, who was ten years younger than me, had a was in a severe car accident. Not a severe car accident, a fatal car accident. Um, it was in the middle of the night, icy road flipped his car and hit a church and uh just to be really really vulnerable he and i didn't have the best relationship it was he was he was he was addicted i i supported him at some point i had to say i can't support you um which is interesting because you know the theories on how to on whether you should support or not are, are really kind of quite nuanced he this happened and it happened um the day before my birthday and the last voicemail i got was him wishing me happy birthday um and so when that happened, and I went and had to deal with a bunch of things to identify his body, things like that, um, 
I came back at that point. I was living in Los Angeles, and I was like, how do I commemorate this person? And I was thinking, he's a chef. Chefs are really into tattoos, right? So that's like a big, big piece of like of, of who he was. And I was like, what's what's something that I feel like I need to be remember? I, I need to remember. And I was like, I need to remember to kind of grip every moment as though it's the last one because we are born with time limits. And so I was like, I'll have the tattoo brave put put over my heart. And so I that felt like a good way to mourn him. However, it's also been a really good reminder for me every day to be willing to put myself out there and sometimes in quite simple ways just just being brave enough to talk to somebody who I wouldn't talk to otherwise yeah that's a that's a really beautiful story and a really beautiful uh, commemoration of this person so Fred just a little of background about you you're clearly you're an expert in design until very recently you were a global managing partner at the super respected and cool design firm IDEO and I'm curious about how you were drawn to become an expert in conversation design. I, I, I'm wary of the word expert because I think the moment that you sort of say you're an expert, you're like, you're, clear, you're clearly not, um, or, or, or you, you've kind of lost the plot. I, I would say I'm a, I'm a devoted student to, the, to both design and the idea of creativity in, in its uses in conversation. Um, and, and just to be honest, you know, it's like I'm growing my team every day so I can bring what the latest neuroscience has to say on, on this and, and, and what science, you know, like basically like a psychology has to say. So, so we keep growing um, the, the, the team that I have. For years, I worked primarily in the realm of space design, but then over time, I really got to focus on social issues and social problems and really wanting to work, as I always really had, in the realm of government, philanthropy, nonprofit. So really leaned into design in that space. So worked with a lot of interesting leaders, Elizabeth Warren, people in the Obama administration, lots of people in the Obama administration. I mean, maybe the last was the uh, Surgeon General, the former Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, who um, who was about to issue a, a epidemic of isolation and loneliness in America. And that's, that's the last thing I was working on with him. Basically, he got fired politics changed. I lost a lot of the work because like suddenly if you were Planned Parenthood, you were focusing on fundamental human rights. You weren't focusing on innovation. And and I started to reflect on what I'd gained from the years I'd done that work. And, And I realized that many of those conversations, especially when they're big strategy conversations for a federal institution, or if they're multi-sectoral, or if they're about how to relieve, not just talk about anxiety in America, but how to relieve anxiety or get to catharsis, was in fact creating conversation. It was actually about designing the conversations we have. So honestly, and, and in, the, in, in, the, in the realm of vulnerability, I also was at a moment where I was like, as with many institutions and individuals, you have to kind of start to say, what's me and what's the institution? You know, and well, I love IDEO and, um, and think it's an amazing place, I, I, I felt like it was a really good moment for me to start to say, what's my voice? I wrote a book proposal, sold it, um, left IDEO, went on pilgrimage, and um, went and started writing, on the, writing the book, which is a different kind of pilgrimage. Um, and, uh, and basically, two and a half years later, we're here, where the book's now out, or about to be out. So, Pilgrims bond in ways that other people don't. And so I was like, well, I'll go walk the, the, the way, the Camino de Santiago. I did that, which was amazing, and then accidentally went to go to visit the Dalai Lama, in Dharamsala, in, in the Himalayas, with a, with a group of people. And while I was doing that, 
we realized that we were pilgrims as well. And so I was recognizing that suddenly like there was a pattern where everything suddenly was like becoming a pilgrimage. One thing that makes pilgrimages work is that everyone's going in the same direction. And if you think about our daily life, that's very uncommon that, that we're all going in the same direction with each other. And what the outcome of that, when you go in the same direction with somebody, is that you find yourself being encouraging. That's ironically quite usable every day. Like even this morning, mm. I went for a hike with my husband because we were, we were having a bit of a disagreement. And I was like, let's just go walk up the hill, which is really hard work, and, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Why do so many good conversations happen on hikes? I mean, I'm thinking about you on this Camino and thinking about you this morning taking a hike with your husband. Why does, why does that help us? It's, you know, I, there's things like when you're on hiking, often you're not face-to-face, you're side-to-side, right? You're also outdoors often, and so outdoors actually kind of, um, it releases different kinds of, of chemicals in your brain. It actually kind of, it, 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 can, it can create kind of a whole new, whole new um, outlook. Plus, you're also exercising, and ex- exercising can, really, can release serotonin. So there's like, there's, there's neuroscientific reasons, there's chemical reasons why that happens. So... It's quite sophisticated. Like the, the, the nuance of a simple hike together, you could, you could almost unpack forever if you wanted to. It's, it's a pretty genius, simple hack if you, if you need to. But then I, as we were hiking, I was like, you know, I can really frame this as like, I need your help. It's not so much a fight. It's more like, can you help me with this? And, that, and that's how we kind of got into the conversation. That's a, that's a really brilliant reframing. Yeah, you, you talk about in your book, commitment to the conversation and it sounds like you both had commitment to this conversation you, you, you say commit or don't so why is that important and, and what's an example of an uncommitted conversation yeah i mean so i mean we're married we've been together for like 18 years um so so we've only been married since it's been legal across the country but um there's been a lot of work on how to have conversations to make us be as committed as we as we can be but what I often find is you'll find people in conversations, and by the way, this can be in the workplace, this can be in the boardroom, this is, can be in a family, can be in a relationship where, where you're like, just not, you believe in the, in the idea behind the relationship, but you don't believe in the person, for instance, or you, or you don't believe in, in, that an organization can succeed, but you're still on their board. You know, or, um, and what, what happens when that happens is you're not committed to the people in the conversation, and you're not committed to the outcomes that you're looking for. And so what you find yourself is, is you find out yourself naysaying, or in a personal conversation, it might be defaulting to critique, because you're like, oh, I'm, I'm committed to you, but I'm committed to making you a better person, because you're, you're, not, you're, not, you're not as good as you can be. And that, that by the way, that's not so nice. <laughs> it's like, so it's like, so the reality is that I think, um, in my mind, you commit to the person first, or you commit, commit to the people, or in the conversation, or you commit to the institution or its goals, and you hold your values a little more lightly, which is counter to what we're taught, right? It's like hold our values core and then commit. But but this case, you're like, nope, it's people first, conversation first, goal, action first, and then values Yes, you're going to express them, but it's going to be it's going to be at the right moment and in the right way. And so, one of the things that I write about in the book, and I, this is especially true in a Zoom pandemic crisis, um, you know, protest um, moment, is in the places where you feel like you can't commit, then it's okay to not. Um, I mean, you know, we've we we spent most of our our existence now living as we live committing and overcommitting and thinking that was actually about doing the right thing. One of the ones we can do by cleansing out some of the conversations that we're not committed to 
which is okay because those conversations can happen without you sometimes, sometimes better. It actually makes your life a little better. So you find yourself kind of like cleansing some of the things that are like, where well, you're not being as helpful as you could be. And that said, I, I'm, I'm very wary about asking people to, to not commit in situations where they're, they're going to be the sole voice of difference. You know, I, I, do, I do think like, think a little bit harder about places where you might represent something that doesn't, wouldn't be represented otherwise. I have a friend who wrote a book called Giving Voice to Values that looks at whistleblowers, and she's quite shy, but she tells a story about having somebody who is telling a racist joke to her team in, in, when she was a consultant, and she didn't have the courage to basically say, stop telling a racist joke. But she did have the courage to say, well, we're really, we really have other work to do. Maybe we should focus on that work. So she was able to steer the conversation in a way that was her own voice without having to kind of like raise her voice. I mean, she would tell you that most people when asked don't identify themselves as courageous. This idea of courageousness, and I think exiting a conversation that you don't feel committed to and you don't want to engage in, that takes a lot of courage and grace at the same time, too. And you already strike me as sort of a graceful conversationalist. I'm wondering if you could give me a graceful way to exit conversations that I don't want to be in. <laughs> there, 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 there are ones that are so subtle. Like, it's like, which is like, I really have to pee. Sorry, mm. I'm going to have to go. <laughs> it's like, it's like, or, 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 you know, it's like, so for instance, like, I have a, um, I have a friend. She's one of those people who, when you're at dinner, She's like, I have to tell you a story about what happened to me today. And the story starts when she was 12 and like you're at the end of the dinner and you're still not at the end of the, at the conversation. She's also the kind of friend, and we, we have these friends where if you, if you interrupt the story or change the story or try to interject, she considers you a bad friend because you're not listening, right? So you, I don't know if you've, you've ever had that in your life, but, but what's interesting is that in that situation, I'm like, no more dinners. I was just talking to somebody who was having this problem in the workplace where I'm like, hey, if you've got a long-winded colleague who just won't stop, just be like, hey, um, I have another meeting in five minutes, so do you think you can tell a story in five minutes? I'm willing to, to you know, be left with a cliffhanger on this one. Which, by the way... Do people, do people they, appreciate that, Fred, when, when you hit them up with, hey, could you, um, could you do a five-minute story? Yeah, <laughs> well, so that's interesting. Some people do. So it's like, so, so for instance, like if I say, can you give me, actually, I'll, I'll do this with you. So could you, could you do like a two-minute story of who, you, no, could you do a 30-second story of who you were when you were 12? I'm just curious. I mean, I would, I would really like to hear what you used to say. I'd be, I'd be happy to. Uh, when I was 12, I won science fair in my junior high school, and I was so horribly embarrassed to do that because the announcement came you know, on the intercom the same day that I got cut by the baseball team. So I felt like I was pushed into this box of being a nerd. And I cried. Oh, God. Oh, my God. You just triggered, like, <laughs> a whole... Uh, I was going to tell you a story about when I was 12, but you triggered, like, a way worse story. Um, so can I tell you, like... <laughs> I'm, I'm not even good at science. I'm horrible at science. It was, it was outrageous. That is the perfect story. So we can talk about what makes up the perfect, um, what I call an illumination, because in the book I write about illuminations. But, but, um, but you know, when, when, I, when I was younger, when I was like seven, I remember I was in Cub Scouts, and all I wanted to do was win the soapbox derby, which is this thing where you would carve a little wooden car and you would put it down the racetrack. And my, it was like one of the only things my father 
really worked with me on it. And so we spent like a whole summer working on this little race car. And I remember getting to the jamboree, we put the car on top, and it turns out the car didn't fit into the track at all. So when they released the thing, oh. my car didn't move. And so oh. I'm going to cry now. I didn't even cry then. I just like, I walked out of the, of the jamboree, and then I cried. Like I cried on the street. Like, it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's so weird. But so here's, here's what happened. I, I don't know how, if you felt appreciation for telling the story, but I felt appreciation for you telling it to me. And um, it also made me understand you in a, in a, in a really great way. I appreciated your story, too. That's, that really is like a chapter in a book. I can see, I can see what, what went on there. Are you from the Midwest? I'm from the Midwest, and it's so funny because I didn't even – I forgot about that until you told me that, that story, and I was, like, I was like, wait a second. You just, like, you just like triggered a way more emotional story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, you know, it's cool because the brevity of your story makes me want to know more. I want to be like, what was it like to be it's gay like, when you were in the Midwest? And, like, and what was this relationship like with your father? It's almost like, damn, man, I, I, I want to know more rather than – Sometimes you get this this like really long sort of like painful and super detailed story where you're like, no, I actually want to know less. That's the so okay. So that's the beauty of what I call an illumination is that it's um it should leave you hanging right, which is like which same. I mean, it's like think about think back to your story, right? So it's like it's like okay, so you got cut from the baseball team. Same like as it's like I was fourth string on the soccer team that I had to play on because my father didn't want to have a gay kid, and he he was my headmaster, right? So mm. so what's, what's good, he was the headmaster of the school. So but what's interesting is like a good short story, an illumination should leave you hanging, leave you with a twist because we love twists. We're psychologically wired to love like whether it's Dark Mirror or it's Shirley Jackson or you know it's like we we, we want the surprise ending. We, we want something that's going to basically be like, I'll come back tomorrow. Like, if, you, if you'll tell me another 20-second story tomorrow, I'll, I'll show up. There's a, there's a lot, and, and, and there's a lot about the kind of magic of when you do it. So if you can help somebody do that, and they, they're like, oh, wait, I get what that feels like, or I get what that sounds like, they are appreciative. Do you have like, conversation partners in your life? Like, how do you get these people that you, that you agree to have? Hey, let's tell an illumination to one another. Well, I mean, I, I've, I'm, I'm working right now with, like, a lot of global foundations working on, on, on how to think about how to either do global innovation through, um, through conversation or how to kind of heal the American psyche or the, 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 the sense of community in America, building a sense of community in America um, with the foundation. So I'm doing this. I have been for – I've been doing it for my whole life, but I've been doing this really since um, – since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so I, I feel like I, I do. I also have to say, like, I have, I have unbelievably am- amount of numerous mentors in this space, you know, who, or accomplices, or, you know, it's like, so, like, I write about, in the book, this guy, George Papandreou, who is the prime minister of Greece, and I learned so much from him during crisis, which is where I kind of got to learn about what it means to be going too fast during a crisis. But he and I talk. Like, we talk once a week. You talk about telling stories. Are you a good storyteller? Do you, do you have stories memorized? And if you, if you do consider yourself sort of like a person who can do this, what are, what are the ways that, that you can become good? I, I really want to make sure that we don't mystify the practice of storytelling. So that, that we're basically like saying, like, oh, storytellers are told by are people who are good storytellers. I think anyone can be a storyteller. Right, right, right. Like, so my great-grandmother 
amazing storyteller. I learned how to tell a 20-second story that illuminates from my great-grandmother. She was a steelworker and a farmer, so like, it's not like she would self-identify as a storyteller. It's not like her friends would be like, oh, she was a, she's a storyteller. Um, but she was really great at 20-second little illuminating stories. So you write about creative listening. I'd love to hear you kind of explicate that. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's really interesting, and and I'll, I'll be curious and kind of get a sense of like what your your listenership kind of thinks about this because it's 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 slightly controversial. But um, you know, in the book, I write about active listening and active listening. It's you know, it, it's really interesting. In active listening has a really a few contexts that where it's really valuable. In the journalistic context, it's really valuable. You know, so it's like so you letting me. Well, like you letting me ramble means that we might learn something that I did we wouldn't learn otherwise. So that's that's actually in in your case it's it's, it's kind of well applied. Um, but in originally active listening was built as part of Rogerian therapy. It's a it was a response to Freudian and Freudian and Jungian theory that said, you know, and what what Carl Rogers believed is, hey. There's no one theory that's going to unlock the human mind um, or, the, or, or the psychology of humans, and so we need multiple theories. So he built active listening, but he built others as well. He's not just known for doing active listening. What does active, active listening sound like? Active listening is you're basically you're talking, and I'm saying, uh-huh, go on. Or in the Rogerian therapy, it would be something like you say something like, Oh, I feel I feel really unhappy today, and and I say, well, why do you feel unhappy? And you'd say, mm-hmm. oh, because of work. And by the way, mm-hmm is a is an example of, of active listening. What you just did, and then, mm-hmm. and then I would say, well, what what about work makes you unhappy? And you would say, because um, I don't have a goal. And and so and so the whole point there in the therapeutic context is to have the the person who's speaking unpack themselves. And that, so that's, that's, a, that's a way of cure, right? It's, it's, it's self-cure. And by the way, even that's a parody of therapeutic practice at this point. That's not the way most therapies happen. Like you may have a therapist who does that, but, but many therapists have, have, have highly adaptive methodologies. Um, and, you know, I, I, have a, I, I have a good friend who's a Freudian a therapist, but she's actually, I'm telling you, she embraces it all, like at this point. She's just like, she's like, but this psychoanalysis or not, you know, it's like, it's like we'll, we'll, we'll go there. What I think happened, sorry, that's a long digression in a way. No, that's okay. Yeah, you you kind of have to define a couple terms here. Yeah, yeah. It's like, so what happened is that active listening came into the lexicon of the workplace um, and is very commonly built into the the workplace in the realm of HR, human resources. And that's where it starts to get really wonky because that's where you start to sort of say when you use active listening in the context of the workplace, it's a way of me being like, I'm listening, but I'm really listening for you. It's not for me. Right, so you're 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 complaining about what so and so did to you, but I'm not in agreement with you. I'm just I, I'm like saying, go on, mm-hmm, go on. Um, it's like it's prompting you, but it's not me hearing you. Active listening is like is everywhere. It permeates teaching. It permeates all kinds of places. And so it, it looks to me like I mean, if you read the book, you're like, oh, he's totally anti-active listening. He's totally create, creative listening. I am totally creative listening, but I also think that active listening does have roles to play in some contexts, but not all contexts. What is creative listening, I guess? So creative listening is actually just, 
dialing up the pleasure of, of listening, to be honest. So there's, there's like eight different ways to do creative listening in the book, or there's probably a gazillion, but, but um, it came out of the fact that like when my designers at IDEO had sort of gotten bad at listening, which they had, they'd gotten really good at note-taking on their computers, but bad at listening, um, I started saying things like, hey, listen like your mother. And I realized that not everyone's mother listened like my mother listened. My mother was a born in a household with a deaf brother, very, like, the household was mostly silent, but they were always in conversation. And so the kind of the, my mother had like an almost uncanny ability to, to listen and to extract people's stories without even being solicited. But that's not what most of my designers were thinking. Yeah, <laughs> when they, I would say, listen, listen like your mother. So we had to start to build some different practices. I ended up, I went to clearance committees, I went to Quaker meetings, in that context, as you know, the whole the whole premise of, of Quaker meetings is you listen you listen to yourself and you listen to the other person. So you, like you witness yourself and what you're feeling, and you witness what the person is feeling as as, as, they're, as they're speaking. Quaker meetings start in silence, and you listen to just yourself. And then when there's kind of witnessing and testimony, you listen and you listen to both yourself and the other person. And that's really the, the theory is like if, there, if God's been talking, God is talking through you at any given moment. However, put that aside. Like let's say you're not of faith, um, which, which I'm not. Um, I believe in faith. I'm just not, I just not, don't have a religion. But uh, um, then what, what happens is, is that it, it triggers another thing. So there's a psychological theory of creativity that basically says when we're in silence, we're in an incubatory mode, which means that our minds make associations that they wouldn't make otherwise. They're more free. And so if we imagine that creativity is our God or like, you know, like you know, whatever, then, then when we're in silence, we're communing with different kinds of solution sets that we might hear otherwise or different kinds of feelings about something. So there's, there's actually good science behind why listening to yourself and listening to somebody else at the same time or being quiet or why ideas come to you in showers um, it, because it's like, it's like that silent incubatory moment where kind of genius things happen. Is there an element of, of pleasure in it? You're hitting, you're hitting exactly right. And so it's like, that's, that's why it's like we look at things that actually are, we know are pleasurable. So gossip is pleasurable. Secrets, we love, like it, it totally spikes something for us, you know? And so, <laughs> so the, those are the kinds of things that you're trying to do is like, it's like, well, okay, tell that story in seven words because that's what a secret is. Like it's just an unbelievably elegant little twist um, and a cliffhanger, you know? So it's like, mm-hmm. so don't, don't tweet it. Like, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of that, but like, but do do tell a secret about it, or do or do, or do write it like a secret. Um, so, so I think there's really a um, uh, there's so many different elements that we can bring to bear when we understand what activates our pleasure, um, the, the pleasure context for us as we're as we're um, as, as we're talking. I like that. I mean, we're, it feels like we're sort of zeroing in on this element of making great conversation, and that there has to be an element of pleasure. To it, there yeah. has to be. But that's our gateway to the making it creative. I I, I, I get that. Another thing yeah. that I really found cool uh, 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 about your book is when you started talking about the evocative visual language and right, why that matters in conversation. And you you gave this great example about wine. I would love to hear you you speak about. <laughs> that is so. It's really weird. Like I was trying to think about how to how to talk about evocative visuals and the idea of naming things. I was like, oh, I don't have a good story. And I was like, oh, wait a second. This is one of my favorite stories of all time. Um, so, you know, we, we have a real terror of sommeliers 
and and in general, if, when when you're actually dealing with somebody, which we again are in in virtual context, a little difficult. Like that's that terror is the fact that like somebody knows more than us. They have the price list, and um, they they can talk in a language that we don't understand. And good sommeliers have gradually adopted their language, so they use they use words that are a little different. Like they'll be like earthy or plummy, but even that doesn't necessarily help us because when you taste wine and you're like, I think maybe it tastes plummy only because you said that. I mean, that's a great example where that, that, that visual, in that case, kind of the, the taste-based language actually allows you to kind of imagine maybe it could, it could trigger in you that, that you that you taste that. Um, that's kind of the, the, the sort of like the frequency illusion in effect or like the idea that it's kind of like once you, once you hear it, you, you start to see it everywhere. But the reality is um, one of the best examples I ever saw was a... Um, was a store that did their wine based on People Magazine celebrities, and so I'll update it because I, I, I it won't be because um, it'll be it'll, it'll be it'll date me if I if I do with what their original things were. But every wine, what they would do is they would basically have like a little card on it, and they would say, "This wine is like <laughs> I'm going to make this up. This this wine is like Taylor Swift's folklore. You know, it's like it's it's fluid." compelling and you're going to want to drink it over and over and over again or this wine is like Lil Nass <laughs> like it's like I, I like the old town road you know it's like and it's like it's like it's just like it's down there it's a little funky but you're gonna you're you're, you're gonna want to consume it like crazy you know it's like so you, you kind of would update it to the basically the the pop stars we have I think when they did it, it was like Madonna it's like sinewy and tough but you're gonna you're gonna drink it over and over again but that's genius that's genius they create this accessible so, language that everyone can a, tap into and no one is excluded from that's right, and 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 what what happens is like when it's visual or in in what I just did auditory, like so it's like it's describing something or taste based or tactile. It gives it gives a lot more weight to things. It's why, for instance, politicians are really good at this. So so what's a word, one word that you would sort of say that like earlier in 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 our political context, like the last four years, it, you feel like you were hearing a lot of oh, security, homeland. How about the wall? So the wall is an incredibly visual um, mm -hmm. term. Yeah. And what's interesting about it is that um, the wall lets you dehumanize the construct, right? Right, because if you, if you were saying, oh, it's about this, um, this refugee that might be, you know, assassinated or killed if we don't get them out of Chechnya, into mm -hmm. the safety of the United States. I'm not making that up. It's a little more difficult for you to kind of be like, yeah, um, I don't want to talk about that. Um, it's like, we're, and so, so it, it, if you, so that, so that's a great example where it's like you have to be careful around the, around the naming because the, because names can also kind of disguise the real meaning behind what something is. So, so as you know from reading the book, I'm like, name it until you don't. You know, it's like it's like it's like like really focus on names until maybe um, it's it feels like it's like it's it's not the right thing. And then, you know, if someone's talking about the wall, maybe try to think about a different way of framing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, it, and I like your advice. You tell people to talk normal. It, it kind of reminds me of conversation stoppers. You know, whether it's a sommelier or it's like a professor in graduate school who's just heavy on the jargon. And, I mean, I'll admit from my point of view that I've used jargon or, you know, $5 words and whatnot in conversation 
probably as a way to avoid connection, as this, as this some effort to win uh, a conversation or um, a remark within the context of a class or a critique or something like that. But it certainly doesn't lead to good creative communal conversation. I'm glad you brought that up. And uh, just just to be even more ironic, so the part the the part that I the chapter called clarity was originally called talk normal. Um, it's only because like everyone likes seven C's that it's like that it ended up becoming clarity. Um, because it's like I was like I was like what's the normalest way of talking to talk about talk about talking normal? So it was called talk normal. Um, then the other irony in that chapter is that um, in the first paragraph, I, you probably I don't know if you even caught it, but I actually used the word obfuscates, and I was like, okay, wait. Oh. I'm like in, in the first paragraph of this chapter, I have the word obfuscates, and I was like, maybe we should have caught that. Like it's like it feels like that would have been. Um, but but yeah, I mean, often often um, specialized language is, is meant to win. Often it's meant to it's actually it's meant to help us kind of exclude. Um, that can be jargon, work jargon. That can be acronyms. It can, it you know, it, it came out of my experience in, in emergency rooms w- with patients who you realize about 50% of the patients knew what triage was. And if you didn't know what triage was, you didn't know that was the first person you were supposed to go see in an emergency room. And so in my, one of my first projects in a hospital setting, I was like, consider get losing the word triage and instead just have a sign that says, go here. You know, it's like, cause that's, that's the simplest way of, of kind of saying, it's not a methodology, it's an approach. Right, so it's like so. What I what I want readers or listeners to do with this work is not to say, I'm going to slavishly kind of respond to this. In fact, what I want them to do is say, like, I'm going to adapt, and I'm going to make this feel like it's mine or my version of dealing with something. And so I I really I just want to kind of hit that because on the other side of things, you don't want two doctors trying to talk normal to each other about you when it's an emergency. You know, you 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 don't want you don't want a doctor saying, go get me that thing that you can listen to someone's heart with that um, I put in my ears. Like, that's just not what you want. You want, you want like, just use stethoscope and assume that, like, I'll figure it out. All right, all right it's, it's fine. So, so there are some moments where if you've got expert language that's going to allow you to kind of move faster in urgent circumstances, like, you do you. Like, it, <laughs> be careful when you're not. Like, you know, if, if, if you have a doctor that's talking normally to you, that's great. If they're if they're talking normal to other doctors, I don't know, not so much. What do you think about Zoom conversations now? Is is there a whole new attitude towards it? What's the the best way that we can sort of have productive conversations in this era where we're video conferencing all the time? And I just got off a lecture with 500 people, and I don't treat my lectures like lectures. I treat them like conversations. So I had a conversation with 500 people, which, by the way, would not have been as easy to do in the old days because it's like I could see the 500 people. I could be scrolling back and forth and I could see, I, I, I could literally, and I could call on people and, 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 and kind of do that in, in, a, in a conversational format. So, you know, Zoom gets a lot of flack. Um, my, my feeling is like, first of all, Zoom is one tool. So you and I are, well, you and I are right now kind of recording this and we're doing it via phone. And the reason I think that works so well for you is you're probably getting a more confessional me right? Because um, when I don't see you, I might be a little bit more open than I would be otherwise, right? So one thing I would say is that different mediums work for different kinds of communications and different kinds of conversations. And I do think that given our moment, just embracing the different mediums really makes a difference. That said, you know, Zoom can work. Like, it's like people are like, I can't make new friends through Zoom. I'm like, 
you can you know it's like uh, there's and there's all kinds of tricks you should think about like you know like for instance if you're doing zooms on a really giant screen you might for instance think about diminishing the size of the person's face so that it's no bigger than your face what you what you don't what you don't want is like the cognitive dissonance of having someone's face looming way larger than it should uh, before you because what that does is it sets up our fight or flight um uh, um, response. So we, we, it kind of makes us kind of panic. So there's all kinds of things you can do to make your your Zoom work better. Um, and how, how about that, hiding your self view? Is that a oh tip my, there? It, it, well, you know, yes and no. I mean, it's like it's like <laughs> it's like yes. I I, I think it, we are very distracted by ourselves, and like it's like let's let's just let's just name it. You know, it's like we we're gonna we're gonna see ourselves, and we are definitely gonna see. Um, there's gonna be like a narcissism kind of bubble it that, that's triggered. But even before, there were people, for instance, who were, who, there was a woman who, I think she did a TED Talk, where she had a hat, where she had a mirror on it, and it was because she was like, it was so fascinating to see what people, how people would talk to you if they were seeing themselves at the same time. So there's pros and cons. You know, it's like I definitely, like when I do a lecture with 500 people, I try to see, I try to see the 500 people. Like, it's like, I, I don't even, I have no idea where I am in that. Um, but it's like, um, but there's sometimes where I'm just like, you know, it's like it's it's. You know, I, I I hate to say it, but in many cases, I think we're, there's a pleasure, there's a pleasure in the narcissism. And so, if it's a really bad conversation, maybe it's worthwhile for you, like just to see yourself. It's just like there's a, <laughs> find the pleasure there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like it's just like contemplate the one thing you like about your face, for instance. But. Well, Fred, before before I let you go. Talk to me about Ethelin for a moment. Why does it matter to you, and why do you see yourself aligned with Ethelin? Well, I'm going to tell you um, a, a little secret, which, um, which, which is that it's like I, I've never been to Ethelin, so I'm aligned with Ethelin as an idea. I've never actually been. I've heard stories about it. I've, all my friends have been. I was going to be there for the first time this spring. I was so excited. Um, and, and it's like, and, uh, and so, so um, I, I know where it is. I've been where it is. I've been to Big Sur. It's like, it's like, but it's just like, I've never actually been there. So that's, that's just one real irony. However, what's interesting about it is it doesn't make me feel any less like I belong. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, I mean, the fact that I've never been there, you and I were talking about this, about Esalen, the idea, Esalen is an idea. It's not just a place. Yes. Right? In fact, it's, it's probably more of an idea. Than it, than it is a place. Um, and, and I believe that what it's been doing for us for decades has been improving our ability to connect as humans um, or improving our ability to connect to ourselves so that we in turn then can connect to humans. With Rockefeller, we have Bellagio, which is a palace in, in Italy that triggers amazing conversations because the awe of the, of the location actually kind of will break down barriers. So there, there, there's... There is like the ethics, the functionality, the science, the nature, the landscape. It's like all of those things are just like I'm like I'm there for it. You know, it's like it's like. Um, and what I'm really interested in is what I what I'm curious about is as Esalen begins to think about how it expands, how Esalen is even more of a community for more kinds of communities, which I think it could really be. It really could be as it goes forward. So something to think about. Fred Dust, your book is Making Conversation. It's been such a pleasure to learn about you, and I think I picked up uh, a bunch of tips about how to have more pleasure and more fun and creative conversation. 
Well, and I appreciate it. I, actually, I think I, I got a few things myself, so thank you. Thanks for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Terry Gilby and Michelle Broderick. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions.